Well, welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. Clarity is a one-year experience here at Fellowship where we are seeking to see Jesus more clearly as a church. And uh, we are now entering into the Epiphany season. Um, and for if you're like me, and the church calendar is kind of a, a new experience for you, I, I've never really had a frame for what Epiphany is. So um, we got Garland here today just to help us understand a little bit what is this Epiphany season all about. Yeah, I mean, as as uh, people at least growing up, I grew up in fellowship, and so for us, we knew what Advent was. I think culturally, we know what happens there. You know, it's the, the little Christmas windows, and then you have the wreath and the candles, and we have Easter. We know what's going on at Easter. Lent, we're not so sure about. Uh, Pentecost, we didn't even know there was a holiday, and Epiphany <laughs> is a Greek word that we don't know what it means, and we're confused as to what's going on here, and this year... We're going to enter into the season, and so uh, just first, what the what the word actually means. So, epiphany just means to shine upon, uh, to bring light to, and epiphany is uh, it actually predates Advent, and so epiphany was the way for the early church to celebrate that the light of Jesus had come into the world, and so as they as they were wanting to remind themselves of that light coming into the world, it became necessary as time went on to to add a little bit more to the story, and that's where Advent came from. But originally, Epiphany was the thing, if, if we never had added Advent, it'd be Epiphany that we put Christmas trees out and light uh, put lights on our house because it's light coming into the world. And as time went on, they added Advent, so it kind of absorbed all the fun. And Epiphany's just left here in the middle. Which kind of makes sense because if you think about the Gospels, um, only two of the Gospels give right. narrative yeah. stories. Yeah, And so this idea of Jesus presenting himself... That's common in all four Gospels, so it makes sense that would right. be the place to start. Absolutely. So when when we look at it, we typ- uh, we typically go, okay, we got the Christmas story is really important, the Easter story is really important, and sometimes we can get a little muddy on all that middle stuff called Jesus' ministry and Jesus' right. pres- presentation as king. And the Gospel of Jesus, the good news announcement of Jesus, actually begins way before the cross and the resurrection. Jesus announces good news in his ministry. He says, the gospel of the kingdom is at hand. It's one of the first things he does. And okay, so you're going to have to unpack that because yes. I think rightly so, we emphasize the centrality of the cross. Absolutely. The cross is the the, the culminating central event, the cross and the resurrection. Um, to the extent that that idea that there's good news in the presentation of Jesus might be a really new concept. So unpack that. How, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, if you think about the story in Mark, so as Mark presents it, he begins the story this way. He says the beginning of the gospel, which is our word for good news, the beginning of, an, of a good announcement of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And then he doesn't take you to Christmas. He goes straight to the baptism. He goes straight to the forerunner, John the Baptist, and then the baptism. And that's really interesting that Jesus, the, the story of the good news of Jesus, it begins with him at his baptism. And mm-hmm. we would add that the entirety of Jesus' story is the good news of God coming into the world, taking on flesh, and then going and living the life we should have lived, dying the death we should have died. That The whole story is pointed to the gospel, but it's interesting that when Jesus steps onto the scene, he pronounces the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. Here is the kingdom, and it's good news. And we, we have to almost kind of shift even some of our understanding of what this word, we've kind of trapped this word gospel into a a little bit of a theological term when it's an announcement. It's a good announcement. And Jesus coming to the world is the good announcement. And it will culminate, obviously, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But he uses that word right off the bat. So it's just interesting. It is interesting. And I think it's important, like, just the value of Jesus as revelation of the Father. Yeah. Um, that idea of shining upon you, I'm reminded of, of John chapter 1, uh, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. That's a problem. Right. 
that, that God, the one who brings everything into existence, the, the source of, of life and light in the world, we've never seen him. There's this distance that's a problem. He says, no one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Right. So that's an important concept that um, when you think about the problem of humanity, the guilt problem is definitely central. But there's also an ignorance problem. There's a darkness problem that we don't know God, mm-hmm. and, and we, we don't um, have a relationship with God. So that shining upon ministry of Jesus, that bringing light to, that showing us this is what God is like, is in and of itself good news. Yeah, and think about even our word epiphany. When we think of the word epiphany in English, we usually mean it as a sudden uh, great idea or a sudden new understanding or a sudden light bulb coming on. And if you want to think about it that way, that's that's what Jesus is. Into the darkness, here comes light. And the story of Jesus is a story of the king who has come, culminating in his death and resurrection, but the light of the world has come. And uh, that's what epiphany celebrates. And so it's a really it's a really Fun. It's supposed to be a joyous uh, season where the church light is is celebrating the light coming into the world. It's supposed to be festive and upbeat and energetic and celebratory. So that's the posture that the church is to take during the Epiphany season in the historical Christian liturgical calendar. Okay, so unpack the content of that light. Yes. So here's Jesus. He presents himself. We see him. The light dawns, and we now get to re- the revelation of God. So what is the content? What mm-hmm. do we learn about Jesus? So the, the traditional church calendar will center in this announcement of light, this bringing of light on three key events. Okay. And they're, they're, they may not be the ones that we would naturally think of. In fact, there's a there's a Latin uh, poem that will celebrate these three things. The three events that uh, the early church was really centering on because they thought they were really instructive are these. Uh, Jesus' baptism, okay. the, uh, the wedding feast at Cana, interestingly, that's something that we, we go, okay, why, why that one? And the visitation of the Magi, the wise men. Which we normally associate with Christmas. We associate that with Christmas. You can see Advent being added later uh-huh. was what took all of that Christmas stuff with it. Okay. But originally Epiphany is, here comes the light of the world. And if the nation of Israel is meant to bring God's rightness to the world and be a light to the world, yet failed miserably in that calling, Jesus now comes. And one of the very first things we see is, here comes we might say the nations. Here comes people from the east. Here comes the world to his feet. Uh, okay. And that's that's one of the, the pictures of why they would celebrate with the Magi. The Latin poem goes like this. It just says, Today the heavenly bridegroom weds his church. Since Christ has washed away her sins in the Jordan, the wise men hasten with their gifts to the royal wedding, and the guests are made glad by the water turned to wine. So you can see them pulling those three things together right there. So we just thought we'd spend a few minutes talking about why those three things are significant because to us, we hear that and go, I don't really get it. So you want to just spend a little bit of time talking about those three things? Yeah. So the the common denominator as I listen to them is they are all um, kind of launching events in the ministry of Jesus. And right. and I even think about, you know, um, we're in a presidential primary series, uh, season. And one of the things people talk about is how people announce their candidacy. Mm-hmm. And people usually choose strategic ways to announce your candidacy that's supposed to show something about what you're going to be all about. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, these are all serving a similar function. Um, these three events all have a kind of introduction of Jesus 
and they're going to frame um, this Messiah. You know, when you look at the the birth narratives, um, Mary's told this is the Son of God, this is the Messiah, um, and then but well, we don't get a whole lot about what that Messiahship will look like. So these three events, as they introduce Jesus, I think they they frame a little bit what is his kingdom going to look like? How, how, what kind of Messiah is he? Mm-hmm. So let's look at him. Yep. The first one we get is the Magi, the visit from the Magi. I think Magi is probably our closest word. Uh, wise men can be a little problematic. For, uh, a couple of things we need to note. We don't know that there's three. Um, right. They bring three gifts. So we associate that as three Assuming each one wise brings a gift. men. Yeah, we three kings of Orientar. So we associate it that way. It doesn't say there was three. Uh, there's also the problem of the timing of the Magi. Uh, putting the gospel accounts together, we tend to cram them all together and then make one nativity scene. So that the shepherds and the wise men walk up at the same at time. At the exact same time. And that's, yep. that's almost certainly not the case. In fact, most uh, a lot of biblical scholars would say the wise men could have come up to two years later. Uh, Why? Where did they get visit. that from? Um, they, they actually, a lot of scholars think that's the reason for the uh, pronouncement of Herod to kill every baby under two. Okay. Because this thing has been, the, 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 the Magi have been traveling and there's something going on and that's the, that's why he picks the year two. Okay. Uh, and so there's, there's other reasons, but we can go in the if nerdy world. If they had showed up the yeah. day of, you might, you would assume it's go kill every newborn. Go, go kill the newborns, go kill right. the infants. Uh, there's some other things in the text that kind of give away that, uh, they're probably not in the stable on the birth night. Got it. Um, and so that. That, uh, we have to understand why. Why is this a significant event? Why is this important? Why did the Why does Matthew include it? It's just odd. It sits there, and I think the point we've we've already addressed: the nation of Israel was called to be the blessing to the world, in line with the calling of their patriarch Abraham. Through mm-hmm. you, I will bless all the families of the earth. And yet, Israel fell prey to the same idolatry and sin that the world did. They chased other gods. They found themselves set, uh, stuck in darkness and trapped under the power and weight of sin. And the nations weren't being blessed. The, 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 the very light that was meant to go out into the nations was dimming in Israel's rebellion and sin. And yet, here comes this one who was born, and at his, at his, in his infancy, in his childhood, here come the nations to his feet. And it's just a really powerful picture that what Jesus is doing as Messiah, what Jesus is doing as king, is fulfilling the Abrahamic promise to bless all the nations. And as Arkansans, non-Jews sitting on the other side of the world from where these events took place, we should be glad about that. We should celebrate that reality. And it also, I think, speaks to something that these kings are bow, or these these magi are bowing down to toddler Jesus. Right. So it's not like I mean, it's something inherent to who he is, not an accomplishment at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually something about the very essence of who Jesus is that demands mm-hmm. the nations bow down to. Indeed, him. he's the king. He's the king. There's something that's instructive about this story. Mm-hmm. So the second one we, we need to talk about is the baptism of Jesus. Uh, what's going on at the baptism of Jesus? And there's a lot that we could say about the baptism of Jesus. I think really compelling to me, and and you and I could, uh, could spend some time talking about this, really compelling to me, though, is what's taking place with baptism Baptism was a, a ceremonial rite that Jewish people did to make one go from unclean to clean. And to when somebody came into the Jewish faith from outside, they would clean them, cleanse them through this baptismal rite. Uh, it's an important ceremony, and it was always done, always legislated, always proceeded over by the priests. It was associated with the temple, associated with the priestly system, associated with, we might say, the power structure, the religious power authority in Israel. And it's very interesting. You've got a group 
that's out here in the Jordan, separate from the temple, separate from the priestly group, and they're doing these baptisms. They're saying this is the true purification. This is the true uh, temple. And Jesus, when John baptizes him, is identifying himself as the true temple, as the true priestly system. And it's a really subvert, in a sense, it's a subversive act that John yeah. the Baptist is doing out there in the Jordan. That's why the Pharisees are down there. That's why the religious leaders are down there because they don't like what he's doing. And here comes Jesus, and he identifies that something is off in the temple. In fact, the temple has fallen victim to the very same things that the world has. Here I come, and I will be the true temple. The temple will now be something that meets around me. It's a very interesting way for Jesus to begin his ministry by doing this baptism thing. Anything you want to add to that? Yeah, and I just I think that's helpful. And just to clarify, because I think a lot of the questions you get around the baptism of Jesus is we if baptism is an admission of guilt, if it is a I need to be cleansed from something, then what is Jesus being cleansed of? Right. And and the point that we're saying there, John saw that problem. When Jesus comes and says, yeah, he understands it. He's like, I, no, I'm not. I don't baptize you. But that's helpful if we understand John's baptism as, in a sense, a rebellion against the current temple system, and saying we've got a new system out here that Jesus, by participating in John's baptism movement, acknowledged something is happening outside the temple structure in Jerusalem. Well, think of a, a, a temple functions as the place where heaven and earth meet. That's the mm-hmm. function of a temple. And in effect, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I am now the temple. The place where heaven and earth meet is me. And as vindicated by the heavens rip open. Yes. And the father speaks. Yes. And the fa- we haven't had since Solomon's temple is destroyed. We haven't had that Shekinah glory of God at the temple moment. Mm-hmm. It, it's been 600 years. Mm-hmm. And so so that that's the first moment where you see that kind of manifestation of God, even visible in the, whole, in the spirit coming down as a dove, uh, recentering the spiritual life of Israel around here's, Jesus. Here's, here's the, even, even talking about this right now, like I'm like, that's amazing. Yeah, this is really so cool. Incredible. We've got to like recapture this in this epiphany season. Uh, the last of it is the, the wedding water to wine event at the wedding at Cana. And I've heard you speak on this before. Uh, what's what's being celebrated here? What's being announced here is really profound. So go for it. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's the first recorded miracle of Jesus. And uh, and interestingly, when, when he's at this wedding, um, his mother comes to him and says, we got a problem. Um, we're out of wine. Jesus, do something about it. And, and he says um, to his mother... Um, essentially, what involvement do I have in this problem? And, uh, and why, why, do you, why do you pull me into this? And at that moment, you know, Mary kind of has a, a good mother response. She doesn't even answer his question. She just turns to the servant and says, do what Jesus says. All right. right. So He'll take like, care of it. He'll take care of it. And he's like, I'm not, I'm not going to deal with that right now, son. Um, and so, but then what Jesus does, he gives really particular instructions because there is this idea of a wedding feast of God and uh, had all kinds of rich symbolism in the culture. And Jesus says, Hey, I want you to go get the jars that you would use for these ceremonial washings, um, similar to the baptism idea. And I want you to bring those to me. And Jesus takes those jars meant to cleanse through a religious system. And he transforms that water into a wine of celebration. 
and it's and let's be clear the amount the, these are basins that are used for cleansing so these are huge these are, these are not these are, these are not little like, yeah, yeah these are giant uh, places that water sells so this is an um, an unbelievable abundance unbelievable of wine. abundance of wine he's saying what used to be a uh, a system for trying to kind of get right with god i'm going to turn into a party i'm going to turn into a celebration of intimacy but what's interesting is he says this phrase in this wedding of Cana, my hour has not yet come. And so it's almost as if he's inviting people to a party that isn't his yet. And in the hint that that idea of the cup and the wine is going to be a significant one, these two themes, these two images of the hour of Christ and the cup are going to play out through the whole gospel of John and his hour will arrive when he I'm looks at the, the hour is important, right? Yeah, what is that? that? The word hour, he, he's going to say it throughout. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then when he's in Gethsemane praying to the Father, he knows the hour has come. And so, in a sense, the 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 path is being laid for Jesus. He's giving us the end goal, the wedding feast, the party, changing the ceremonial cleansing into um, the feast, the ceremony. But Jesus' involvement in that party, before he comes to the feast, he goes to the cross. Mm-hmm. And by the cross, he will then initiate yeah. the feast where all this comes to fruition. Yeah. It's interesting that in Revelation, that's what they call uh, the celebration of new heavens and new earth, the wedding feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so just really fascinating. And so uh, this is a season that we're unfamiliar with. And one of our hopes is just to dive back into the story of Jesus. We're going to do so by looking at the the gospel of Luke and picking out some accounts of Jesus. And we'll try to make sense of those as we go as a church on uh, Saturday night and Sunday mornings in our different congregations. But uh, this is a season of celebration. This is a season to look and be reminded that light has come into the world and to be wowed and amazed again at the the unbelievable narrative of what Jesus came to do and how he presented himself. And man, if we could do that, then uh, I'd be really excited as a church. I love it. Well, uh, I hope this was helpful as we enter the uh, epiphany season and pray that this time that we get to take a better look at Jesus and see him more clearly. Thanks for listening.